Romans chapter 3. Everybody turn in your Bibles. Romans chapter 3. If you're joining us by way of Facebook Live, YouTube Live, uh, or catching us later on a podcast, God bless you. Thank you for finding us. Uh, we're two for two. Second Sunday of the year, we baptized two people. Uh, I wish y'all just keep me in that water, keep me in the baptistry. That means people are getting saved. That means our church is doing what our church is meant to do. Uh, so I just encourage you, man. I wish y'all could keep me in that water every single Sunday of the year. Which brings us to Romans chapter 3. I started a new sermon series last week entitled Lost. We're simply trying to talk about what it means to be outside of Christ. What it means to live your life apart from Christ. I know that I'm speaking primarily to believers in this house anyway. Most of you are Christians. I don't, I don't assume all of you are, but most of you are. Um, at the very same time, sometimes those of us who know Jesus can become least concerned for those who don't. And that's a tragic kind of spiritual deadness that overtakes our heart that we would no longer be concerned for the lostness of the world, which is exactly why I want us to stop and talk about what it means to be lost. Romans chapter 3 is where we'll be today. I'm going to start in verse 9. Understand the book of Romans, Paul is pretty much answering one question. It's a big question, especially in his day, but it's an instructive question for us in our day. In the church at Rome, you have the very strange situation of Jews and Gentiles in one church. Jews and Gentiles in the very same church. There's one gospel, the gospel of Jesus, which is the gospel of salvation for everyone. But it was difficult in Paul's day for people to answer that question. How can it possibly be that Jews and Gentiles would get saved in the same way? For the simple reason that the Jews had a very different place in salvation history, in God's plan of salvation. The Jews are the people of the Old Testament. The Jews are the people of the Exodus, the, the, the children of Moses and Abraham, the prophets. The Jews had this tremendous history with God. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. And for that reason, the Jews sort of assumed that they had some sort of advantage, some sort of different plan. But this is what Paul is trying to say. There is one plan of salvation, there is one Savior, His name of Jesus, and He is the Savior of everyone. There is one way to be saved because everybody has the same problem, and the problem is sin. Everybody gets saved the same way because everyone has the same problem, we're sinners. And this is what Paul is trying to bring home in this part of Romans chapter 3. All people are sinners, Jews, Gentiles alike. Let's read the passage together. And let's talk, about, let's talk about what it means to be lost. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we've already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the scents from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing, bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. 
For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. I was um, at the bedside of a dying man. He was a friend, uh, a man I'd known for years. I'd known his family. I pastored his family. Uh, His wife was there. The children, the grown children were all there. Um, This was probably within an hour of his going to be with the Lord. He was uh, that far um, toward death. He was past acknowledging our presence. He he didn't respond to anybody's voice. He was past the point of, you know, when the kids would say, Daddy, squeeze our hand. He wasn't squeezing anybody's hand anymore. He was nearly gone. God bless his soul. As I stood there, though, um, a moment came when he... Uh, began to move his hands, still not responding in any way to anybody or anything in the room, but he began to move his hands. And I watched, it was really interesting because it was very um, purposeful. He, he knew what he was doing, and, and it was strange. And I watched it the longest time, and then I finally just asked his wife, what do you think he's doing? And she said, I, I know what he's doing. He's eating an orange. She said, he eats an orange Every day at this time. And so sure enough, you, you watch him. He, he had the orange and he palmed it in his hand. And then he, he peeled it. You could watch him peel it. He, he, he knew exactly what he was. That, that orange was more real to him than me, his family, the world, and everything in it. He peeled that invisible orange and, and then he, you know, divided it into segments. And then he would tear them apart and, and bring them to his mouth. It was sad and beautiful at the same time just to watch him. There was some part of him that could remember that orange. And I don't know what part that is. It was almost like his hands remembered. You know what I mean? He was so far from his home and he would never eat another orange in this life. And yet there was some part of him that could return to that sacred daily ritual. There was some part of him left over that reached for that daily orange. And as I remember that moment with that dying man, um, it brings me back to what we talked about last week. Adam and Eve in the garden. uh, our, our first parents, right? We talked about how they were created uh, to know God, to, to dwell with God, to walk with him in the cool of the day, to know God's presence, to, uh, to, to know his glory. Their lungs created to breathe the fresh glory of God like air. And we talked about how they sinned, how they fell, and now all of us are fallen. All of us. So as I think about that man, that, that dying man reaching for that orange, I just wonder, do you think there's some 
leftover part of us that reaches for God. You know what I'm saying? Is there some uh, remaining part in Adam's progeny that would cause us to, um, to reach out for God the way that dying man reached out for the orange? Is there some part of us that can remember Eden? You know, the way that man's hands could remember the feel of, of the orange. Honestly, I believe so. I would say we all share the same fatal flaw. We're sinners. It's Romans chapter 3. We just read it. I'm going to talk about it over and over and over. But I don't think you need that much convincing. I think you know. I think everybody knows. I think at some gut level, everybody knows it. Now, we live in a world of lost people, and they don't say that they're lost. They wouldn't use that kind of gospel vocabulary. They don't probably say they're sinners. They don't think that they sin. None of that is something that rings true with them. And yet, I insist, in their gut, at some level, they have to know. I think we all know. I I think we're lost. Now, understand, lostness is all we've ever known. We talked about this last week as well. You were born into a world that was already going downstream, downstream, turned away from God. And the moment you knew there was a path, you stepped off the path. You've never known anything except lostness. The lost world knows nothing else. So how would they know that they're lost? How would there be any part that would continue somehow to to reach out, to to reach back, to, to, to think of what? We've never known, and yet our souls would know we're so far from home. I I can't explain it completely, but I know it's there. Uh, It's probably a sign of our times, uh, but there are now multiple uh, anonymous confession sites on the Internet. Uh, Most social media now, Facebook has multiple anonymous confession. The ones I'm about to read come from Instagram. Understand, these are just people. And I would say most of them, if not all of them, they're not church people. And much of what they confess, they probably wouldn't call sin. But I'm just telling you, there, there's something about us. We can't turn this off. Notice, this is what people go on the internet to write, to, to just confess to the universe, you know. Here's the first one. I'm so lonely I mailed a letter to myself telling me I was great, and I signed it Johnny Depp. Okay, that's just weird. I mean, I'll just say that, that that's weird, but also profoundly sad. You, you know what I'm saying? Next one. My life is not meant for anything. My poor children are growing up with a mother who's not good for anything. Who, who wrote that? And, Who does she think she's talking to? I am a room attendant at a fancy hotel. Sometimes I clean the drinking glasses by wiping them over with the dirty towels of the previous guest. I'm pretty sure I've stayed in that hotel. I mean, that's my luck. I would get that, you know, I would get that hotel. I honestly wonder if people really like me. I feel as though I'm a bother or burden to everyone. I apologize constantly. Again, who puts that on Instagram? Who are they talking to? What, what, what in the world calls that forth? 
I despise my coworker. I take the candy from her candy bowl and lick it and then put it back in her bowl. I'm just hoping that's not Warren Weeks right there. I'm, I'm, that's, that's, that's all I got to say. This one. I miss feeling close to God. Written on Instagram. I eat all the time because the feeling of being full makes me feel content and happy. It makes me feel like I'm loved. Just break your heart. I made a promise to my wife about not looking at porn. I have since done it three times. I feel like I let her down and also myself. What is behind this kind of thing? Do you know what I'm asking? Like, this is our society. These are our people. These are the kind of people we know, and they wouldn't use the language of sin. They wouldn't say that they're sinning. They wouldn't say that they're lost. They don't think they need Jesus or anything else, but, but there's something about us. We can't turn that off, that, that, that feeling that we have fallen short, that, that awareness that we are not what we're meant to be, and, and that that, that incredible conviction that somewhere somebody is, is offended or not pleased with us, that impulse to confess, to just put it out there. You understand, I, I know that people don't necessarily call themselves lost. I know that they don't think of themselves by the gospel terms that we use, but I'm telling you, everyone is a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. And, and, and I think deep down, everybody knows it at some gut level. Every lost person understands, understands that there is something wrong, something lost about them. Which brings us to Romans chapter 3. Now, I read this, and I know I'm talking mostly to church people, and because of that, y'all are listening to this thinking, well, that's pretty dramatic. This passage I read is pretty dramatic. I mean, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The snake venom drips from their lips. I mean, I've preached some bad sermons, but I'm not that bad. You know, know what you say? I mean, I'm not that bad. They rush to commit murder. I mean, no, we don't. I mean, we're not that bad. I mean, the world is full of good people. This church is full of good people. I know so many really good people in my life. The community of Woodburn is full of so many good people. My neighbors are such good people. Have you ever asked that question? I mean, you look at this and it says, there is none righteous, not even one. And you think, well, my goodness, there's so many nice church ladies in, in our congregation. They're good ladies. Make sweet tea and casseroles, pecan pie. These are good women. So what you have to understand is that the word there is not good. Romans 3 doesn't say that nobody's good. I mean, Paul would not say that there's not good people in the world. There are good people. Paul actually, in his own testimony, says, I was one of the best people you would ever meet. I was blameless before the law. I mean, Paul would actually say he was a good man. I mean, that's what we would say. So we're not talking about good people. Of course there are good people. But the word here is righteous. There is none righteous, not even one. And there's a difference between righteousness and goodness. I mean, to put it plainly, that word righteous, it has to do with being in a right relationship with God. We're talking about, you know, the life lived before God. And before God, none of us is right. None of us is righteous. Now, we compare ourselves to one another, and we can come out looking pretty good. 
but one another. That, that's not our standard. I don't get to just pick out somebody and say, well, compared to him, I'm pretty good. I think it was, was it like the late 90s when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred? Horrible act of evil. Uh, the man's name was, was, if I recall, Timothy McVeigh, and he never denied doing it. I mean, he did it. He did it purposefully. He planned it. He packed that truck full of explosives, parked it in front of the Murrah building there in Oklahoma City, full of people, and then he detonated the explosives. He killed hundreds of people. 19 of them were children in the daycare on the you know, upper floor. It was, it was devastating carnage. I think over 500 people lived but were badly injured. He was guilty. Never said he wasn't guilty. I mean, that is an evil act. But the thing is, as I recall, at his sentencing, in other words, they know he's guilty. Now they're talking about his punishment, right? And so one of Timothy McVeigh's lifelong friends took the stand and gave a testimony, sort of trying to be a character witness for Timothy McVeigh. Did y'all see that? You remember what he said? What he said was, I've known Tim. He called him Tim. I've known Tim all of my life. And I can tell you, apart from this one instance, you'd have to say he's a really good guy. Would we, though? You know what I'm saying? Apart from this instance, he says, you'd have to say he's a really good guy. I don't know that I'd have to say that. You know, I don't think that you can say, well, you know, if you, if you bracket out this afternoon, pretty good. No, it doesn't work. None of this works that way. You would not have to say that Timothy McVeigh was a good guy. But it's crazy. I'm telling you, anytime you watch television, like at the news, when they catch a serial killer, I mean, we don't have that many, you know, but, but when there is one, man, it's on the news. Like somebody, you know, be killing people, and, and then they find them, and they've been, like, cooking their body parts on the stove in the Dutch oven, and they've you know, got decapitated heads in the freezer, and then all of a sudden they bring them out, and then what do they do first? They interview the neighbors, and what do the neighbors say? Every single time, what do the neighbors say? He was an ordinary guy. He was normal. He was, well, one time I was sick and he mowed my yard. He was a good neighbor. He was normal. Okay, can I just say, normal people don't have heads in their freezer? I don't care what kind of good neighbor, you know, there's just something about that. You know what I mean? Does it ever surprise you the way the very worst people you can ever imagine somehow turn out to be more or less just like the rest of us? The worst of us turn out to be more or less normal like the rest of us, which only emphasizes the very point that Paul is making here. Everybody's a sinner. We're all sinners. That's why you look at the dude who's got a decapitated head in his freezer and say, well, if you ignore the head in the freezer, he's a good guy. He's normal because all we know is sin. All we know is lostness. It turns out we all think that that's normal. It's not. And this is what Paul, this is what the gospel tries to call us to understand. It's what the Holy Spirit wants to stir in your heart. The recognition that sin is not normal. Sin is the inversion of God's purpose. Sin is the reversal of the way in which you were made. To be a sinner is to be fallen. It is to be lost. Off the path, away from home. I I know, I know. Parts of this passage sound really dramatic, but... But notice a couple of things with me. First off, 
Paul doesn't really spend a lot of time talking about the rules that sinners break. For most of us, we think of sin as breaking rules, doing bad things. And honestly, there's not a lot of talk about the bad things sinners do. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what sinners do. Paul spends time talking about the way sinners are. And that's different. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away, verse 12. All have turned away. Now, I recognize we don't all turn away in the same way. We don't all sin in the same way, even though we're all sinners. And that's where we start to play games with ourselves and with the definition of sin. In other words, we begin to sort of define sin in our own heads in ways that somehow makes us look better. As a pastor, it's funny, you know, I get a whole congregation of people, you know, suggesting, you know, good topics for sermons all the time. And it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just great. Have somebody say, you know, Pastor Tim, I think you really need to start preaching on divorce. You need to preach about divorce. Now, who's asking for more sermons on divorce? Just to be honest, who's asking for that? People who've never been divorced. Because honestly, if you've never been divorced, a really good rousing sermon on divorce is delicious. If you've never experienced that pain, that's delicious. You know, if, as long as the preacher's talking about sins of which we're not guilty, people come and say, Pastor Tim, I, want to, I, I wish you'd preach on homosexuality. I wish you'd preach something on transgenderism. I wish you'd preach, and the list goes on and on and on. Nobody, not one time, nobody's ever come up and said, Pastor Tim, I wish you'd do a really good, a really good series on gossip. Not one time. Isn't that kind of interesting? Not one time. Even though gossip is in, in all those lists of like the horrible things we can do, gossip's always there. But gossip is one of those sins that we just can think is so very excusable. That's not a big sin, because that's the kind of sin of which most of us are guilty. Every single time in, in Baptist church life, in, in our church life, when it's time to select deacons or, or talk about deacons, we always go back to Timothy to that list of qualifications, right? You know, what, what makes a good church leader? And, and there's in, right there in that list, husband of one wife, which so many folks, you know, just make that about divorce. And so then the question comes up, are we really going really to allow divorced men to be deacons? Are we really going to ordain a, a divorced man, you know? And uh, I, I'm not making light of that concern. However... There's a whole list there, people. There's a whole list of things that would disqualify a person from being a church leader. I mean, look at the list, people. Right there in that same list, it says that a church leader should never be a lover of money. Now, not one time, not one time in, in 26 years of being a pastor, in all of my life in Baptist churches, I've never ever, not one time, had somebody say, are we really going to ordain a man who loves money? It's never happened. We've never been concerned about that. You know, as a matter of fact, if you got a guy who's good in business, has a lot of money, drives a nice car, man, he is going to be our guy. We're going to love him, you know. So as it turns out, greed and love and money, that's not really something that, you know, that's going to fly up our nose. I mean, we're cool with the kinds of sin that, you know, that, 
that, that we're guilty of, and then we love to sort of shine the light of condemnation on the sins that don't involve us. But Romans chapter 3 leaves you no place for that. We're all sinners. We don't all sin in the same way. My way of sinning is not your way of sinning, but make no mistake, we're both sinners. The homosexual sin is not worse than the adulterer's sin. We probably have more adulterers in our congregation than homosexuals, which is probably why you'd rather hear me preach on homosexuality. Know what I mean? No one is righteous. No, not, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. Verse 12, all have become useless. Useless. You say, Pastor Tim, I'm not useless. I work every day. I, I know you do. It's one of those words that's hard to translate. It's a Greek word. It is the word for sour. It, it is the Greek word for when milk goes sour. Do I know about sour milk? This morning I discovered that the half gallon of milk in my fridge was sour. Uh, I didn't discover it before I ruined a bowl of cereal, you know, because you turn up and it goes plop, you know, like whoop. Yeah, ugh. I buy a whole gallon because gallons of milk are cheap. A half a gallon costs more than a gallon. They'll give you a gallon of milk at Myers, you know, but then you got to pay, you know, at the nose for half a gallon. So I get a gallon of milk, but it's just me and my wife, and we don't drink that much milk. So I end up with a, you know, a jug of milk from October, you know, in, in my fridge. It kind of looks the same. If you let it sit a long, long time, it will eventually look different. But for a long time, it will look the same, but it won't smell the same. That's why you need to do the smell test, the, the taste test if you're brave. Oh, gosh, y'all, one day I was, we were visiting, I'm way off now, we were visiting Casey's grandmother. Y'all know about grandmas? So Mimi Wilson lived in Ohio, and I was standing there. I'm like, you know, the idiot son-in-law standing there just trying to not be noticed. And, and Mimi Wilson takes a drink of milk out of a cup, and then she goes, oh, 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 that milk is sour. It's terrible. And then she turns to me and goes, here, taste it. No, Mimi, no, I, I believe you. No, it's horrible. It's the worst. Oh, I can't believe it's so bad. Taste it. I'm like, no, no, I, I don't want to taste it. She's like, take it. Take a drink. I'm like, no. Now, I mean, you know, like I'm about to be thrown out of the family because she's just insisting that I taste it too. I believe you. I know it's terrible. Sour milk is terrible. And that's the word used right here. All of us, our lives have soured. I like that idea because it, it captures that way in which we are not what we're meant to be. You know, we were created for something else, but now because of sin, we have soured. Our lives have soured. You know what I mean? Now, not everybody knows they're lost. Not everybody would use that language. They may not see themselves as, as sinners, but everybody knows how sour life can be. Yeah, I mean, Paul just goes on. He's quoting the Old Testament. No one does good, not a single one. Talk is foul. I mean, he goes on to talk about how our lostness comes out and the way we talk. Verse 16, two words there, destruction and misery always follow them. The word, Greek word there for destruction, um, it has to do with uh, like, like breaking, like shattering. It's a word for like shattering, breaking things. The picture is like a bull in a china shop, right? And the idea is, is that's how we are. 
That's how we are. That's what it is to be lost. That's what it is to live apart from Christ. You somehow never are able to handle important, delicate things like they're important and delicate. You're like a bull in a china shop. You break everything you touch. I mean, whatever you have, you're going to ruin it because that's just how you are. The scripture says that kind of destruction, that, that breaking things, that follows us. Have you not experienced that? This is why some of us can't stay married. Any relationship you're in, you break it. You ruin it. You always tell yourself, I'm going to find another man, I'm going to find another woman, and next time I'll be different. But, but you can't change because you can't change. You do not have the power to change yourself. You can imagine yourself being a different person. You can imagine yourself being faithful. You can imagine yourself being kind. But when it comes right down to it, you're going to do the very same thing every single time. You're going to take something valuable, something beautiful, and you're going to put it in your back pocket of your pants and sit down on it. You're going to break it every single time. Destruction, and the next word is misery. Again, hard to translate. It comes from the Greek word for, for callous. Like you have calluses because you work, right? But because of something that, that was work, something that was hard. And, and this is the idea of this word here, that misery, misery is a good word for it, but it really has to do with how when you don't know Christ, when, when in your sin, left in your lost state, everything is hard work. Like everything about life that seems like it ought to be easy enough is still somehow strangely hard. This is why you're a dad and, and you find it almost impossible to imagine getting out of your chair and walking your sorry behind down the hall and starting a conversation with your teenage daughter. Like, you don't know how to have a conversation with your teenager. You raised them. You were there when they were born. But for some reason, that relationship is a lot of hard work for you, and you don't understand why. I'm just telling you, there's something about our lives outside of Christ. There's something about lostness. Everything's harder than it ought to be. Some of you this morning, man, some of you ladies, you got a husband, a good man. He, he dropped you off under the canopy. In the pouring rain, he sacrificed his hairdo for you, girl. And he's a good man, and you'd say he's a good man. He dropped you off at the door, he parked the car, he walked in the rain, he works every day, he provides, he takes care of you, he fixes things. But for some reason, you still find it really, really difficult to stay with him. It's just symptomatic of our deeper disease. You understand, your problems or not your problem, your teenager, your, your wife, your job, uh, President Biden, COVID, none of this is your problem. Do you understand? Your problems aren't your problem. Sin is your problem. We don't all sin in the same ways. We've turned to our own way. We don't all turn in the same ways, but make no mistake, we all turn uh, away from the Lord. So like I say, in the world in which we live, this is everybody. I mean, those who don't know Jesus, which is most of the world, this is how they are. This is just their lives. They're lost. They don't necessarily say that they're lost. They never use that word. But I insist, they're at some gut level, they know. At some gut level, they, they know that, that they don't measure up, that there's something missing. 
They know it because everything they hunger for, everything they think they want, as soon as they have it, they don't want it anymore. Haven't you experienced that a million times in your life? Uh, you want something, you see it. I mean, some of you right now, whatever you got for Christmas, you wanted that, you wanted an air fryer so bad. Like you would have given a kidney out of your body for an air fryer. And you got it out one time and you fried whatever you fried, you fried your air, whatever you fried. What do you fry, y'all? You fried potatoes in your air fryer and you ate them and you just thought, well, you know, that was a whole lot of, you know, about nothing. And your air fryer will now sit in the closet until the yard sale that you'll have in the year 2030. Why is that? Actually, with so much of what you think you, I mean, you see a, you see a, you know, a pair of pants, a shirt in the store, and you think, man, I got to have that. And you, you try it on, and you think, woo, you know, man, I'm looking fine in this. And then, and then you get it home, and, and all, that feeling never lasts. You always see, man, if I had a new car, you know, if I just had a new car, man, if I had a new hairdo or, you know, man, whatever, we just had a new president. I mean, you just keep thinking of all these ways your life could be better, but it never, ever gets better. It's on you. Some gut level, you know. So some gut level, everybody knows they're lost. Something's profoundly broken. So what do people do? Actually, most people don't come to Jesus. They, maybe they haven't heard. We haven't told them yet. But most people are out there lost, and, and they don't know Jesus. So how do they deal with their lostness? How, how does that work? Apart from Christ, how do people deal with, with this sense of sin? I just got a couple of ideas for you. First, they try to justify themselves. Again, that's another technical church word there, justify. Um, they justify themselves. Honestly, truthfully, only Christ can justify us. I mean, to put it kind of bluntly, justify means that, you know, Jesus makes it justified, never sin. No, justify, justified, never sin. Jesus is the only one who can take away our sin. Jesus is the one who's paid the penalty. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for my sin-sick heart to be made whole. Jesus is the one who's able to bring us back home to the Father. Jesus is the only one who can find and bring home the lost sinner. Jesus is the one who justifies, but if you don't know Christ... If a person doesn't know Jesus, they often will try to justify themselves. You know what I mean? They've got to somehow deal with this contradiction, with this uncertainty, with this dissatisfaction, this anxiety that's just a part of being a fallen human being. And so they'll justify themselves. Our culture is so ripe with this right now. These are all the people who just say, listen, this is just how I am. This is just who I am. I'm just being me. You know, and the idea is, I'm going to be me, and the whole world should just make adjustments, you know, because this is who I am. I was born this way. Okay, I agree. You were born this way. I was too. This is what Paul is saying. We were born in sin. And, and, and despite the fact that that's all we know and it seems normal to us, that is not what God intended for us. So if you just say, well, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna do it my way, I'm just like my grandma, this is how she was, and now this is how I am, you know, you, you know, nobody can judge me. I mean, yeah, you just go right on trying to justify yourself, but I'm telling you, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter if the whole world throws you a pride parade, it will never, ever, it will never settle that unsettled part of you that continues to tell you that you're not who you're supposed to be. Are y'all with me? 
I hope none of that sounds harsh because it's not harsh in my heart. My heart breaks for lost people. What's wrong with us? People are really struggling and really trying to figure this out, and they don't know Jesus. And and, and we say we know Jesus, but we just wag our heads and we judge people, and, and they're trying to do the best they can do, and they don't have Jesus. They can't do it try to justify themselves or or people don't they don't see their sin as against God this is also so much a part of, of our culture in other words some people admit kind of sin or transgression but they don't want to think that there's a God up there that's going to have something to say about their choices right and, and so they just sort of make their sin against other people that's why some people think so in other words whatever I do if nobody gets hurt then it must be okay. In other words, so I'm having sex with my girlfriend and we're not married, but she wants it as bad as I want it. So therefore, since nobody gets hurt, then it can't possibly be sin. Like, like I'm not making stuff up, right? Like y'all know how the world works. This is what people say. Nobody gets hurt, so, so what I do must be okay. Or either that or, you know, it's not so much against God, it's a sin against, in our day, the environment. Like I've literally had, I've literally heard people say, Pastor Tim, I'm a good person. I recycle. That's really interesting. To get that kind of sense of righteousness, you know, out of, you know, whatever, putting your, you know, aluminum cans in the orange bin and dragging it to the curb. That sense of righteousness that comes from that. Now, let let me say clearly, I do believe that Christians have a responsibility to be good stewards of God's creation. I'm all about that. But but, but it ain't no plan of salvation, y'all. I mean, in in the same token, there are those right now that get such a sense of righteousness out of their vaccination status, whether they are or whether they're not. They still get this really strange sense of, of righteousness about it that's just so bizarre. But it's symptomatic because, honestly, this is how we are. You know, we're we're trying to righteous ourselves, trying to justify ourselves, and we don't ever want to see our our actions as as anything that God would have something to say about. I would say most of the people that I talk to that say they're agnostic or atheist, which is a whole lot of young people these days, they're not agnostic or atheist at all. It's just that they don't want to talk about a God who might have some opinions about what they're doing. You know, they want to live their lives and they don't want to think about a God who might have the authority to command their life. So for that reason, they just don't think about anything they do as being in relation to God and they call themselves agnostic. It's, it's still just lostness, you all. I don't think they're sinning against God, but it's only against God that we sin. And, and then so many of us, we put confidence in moral effort. It's just probably more like us. I don't assume that because you're sitting in church that you belong to Christ. I don't assume that at all. If, if your aim is to deal with your sin without coming to Christ, honestly, church is an awesome place to hide out. You can come to church and, and you can sit through like, you know, a sermon that's always way too long and, and you suffer through that. But then you walk out thinking you paid for your sins, right? You, know? you feel better about yourself because you came to church in the rain. You know? Let your wife out at the door. You're telling yourself, I must be some sort of good man. I'm going to deserve something. You, you know? uh, moral effort. As a pastor, sometimes my most discouraging moments are, are at funeral planning. 
Because at the funeral is where I start really beginning to understand what people actually believe, not what they say, but what they believe. And how many times you get to the funeral and you ask about, you know, daddy, and, and, and your church member will say, yeah, you know, my daddy, he never was much about Jesus, you know, but he was such a good dad, you know, and, and I know I'll be with him again one day. That's not how it works. Being a good dad doesn't get you to heaven. It's not that I take any pleasure out of taking away your hope about your daddy, but you've got to understand your daddy's only hope is in Jesus. It's not in his goodness as a daddy. Somehow we, we still think, despite what the gospel says, we still think that if we're just good people, like really, really good people, or at least better than most, if we're just really good and if we follow the rules and if we go to church and we carry our Bibles and we put money in a plate and we pat the pastor on the back, then somehow in the end God's just going to smile on us. And that is not how any of this works. The gospel positively obliterates the delusion that you can be good enough on your own. None righteous, no, not one. I think deep down, some gut level, can't get away from it. I think people know. I think that every lost person, there is some part of them that reaches for God the way that dying man reached out for that orange. I can't explain it. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, there's an amazing verse. This is Ecclesiastes 3. It's that passage that says there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest. It's that whole you know, time for everything passage. But at the bottom of that, there's this verse, verse 11. And it says the most amazing thing. It says, God has planted eternity in our hearts. God has planted eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? I know that I am a finite creature of dust. Because of sin, I will die. And I know that. I, I'm finite, but, but somehow, inexplicably, I have this capacity to imagine eternity. I'm finite, but, but I can imagine infinity. I'm, I'm making any sense? He's put eternity in our hearts. Now, the thing is, in this world, there's nothing eternal. I mean, everything in this world, I mean, Paul says the world and everything in it is just passing away. and That's our whole life. It's a life of uselessness, a, a, a life of breaking things and, and everything being harder than it's supposed to be. And yet, God put this capacity in me to always somehow imagine something greater, something bigger. And, and, and deep down in the bottom of my heart, I know I was made for more. I was made for more. That's why everything, everything you get in this life, everything you buy in, in this world, everything that you have, everything you experience, in the end there's always some sort of disappointment. Because nothing in this world can satisfy the hunger for eternity that God has placed in your heart. Am I making sense? Do you understand? 
This is why, this is why you, of all creatures God ever made, you're the only creature, you and I, that can be afraid of death. Because we have this capacity to think about something on the other side of death. Where do you think that comes from? How do you think it is that we can have these desires, these hungers, these longings that are never satisfied by anything down here? Has it never occurred to you that you were created for someplace else? Ever occurred to you that there's this part of you that reaches out for God, even if you don't even know it's God you're reaching for? You were created for Him. You were made to live in in the beauty of his presence. You were created to walk with him in the cool of the day. Your lungs were made to breathe fresh his glory like air. We placed eternity in our hearts. That's why I say at some gut level, everybody knows. That's why you never feel like you're enough. Because there's always this sense that you were created to be more. And you were. But the only way to fulfill that destiny, the only way to fulfill that purpose, the only way to become what you were meant to be is through Jesus. I watched that dying man reach out and some part of him, some part of him could return. And, and, and know the feel of that orange in his hand and, and the smell and the taste. There was some part of him that was clinging to that orange for dear life. Just saying, I think there's a part of you. You may not know it. You may never understood it. A part of you that reaches out for God like that. You have eternity in your heart, still, outside of Jesus, you're lost, so lost, pray with me.